0: You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Anne and Annie Gillespie. In September of 1988, Anne Gillespie was 18 years old and was in her final year in St. Columbus College in Ballybofie, a small town near to the border in County Donegal which was nestled in a bend of the River Finn and right next to the twin town of Stranoler. Anne lived with her mother, 58-year-old Annie, in a house on the Donegal Road where they'd moved after the family farm had been sold. The 20-acre holding outside Ballybeaufey was sold after the death of Anne's father. As well as attending school, Anne had worked in various hotels over the summers for the previous few years. Anne was a striking girl with thick, curly hair, styled perfectly for the times in bouffant curls and 80s bangs. The young woman had a steady boyfriend for nearly three years. He was 22-year-old John Gallagher, a van driver, who lived on post office lane in Lifford, Donegal, which was on the border with Northern Ireland and just across the River Foyle from the larger regional town of Straban, County Tyrone. But the relationship between the two young people had become strained. John was possessive and he didn't get on with Anne's family. Then, on September the 18th, 1988, Anne and her mother Annie went to Sligo General Hospital to visit Anne's grandmother, who was in the orthopaedic ward there, with other members of their extended family. They were there with Teresa and Angela, Annie's sisters and Anne's aunts, and Angela's husband Patrick and their three kids. After visiting her grandmother, Anne made her way back to the family car with her mother. And then they saw that John Gallagher was in the hospital parking lot. Anne panicked and cried out, quote, He has a gun. He's going to kill me. The two women rushed to the car and got into the back seat. Gallagher had been waiting for Anne outside the hospital. He yelled for Anne to get out of the car, tried to open the back door of the car, and then fired his rifle and burst one of the tires. He then turned towards Anne's uncle, Patrick Maguire, and said, I'm giving you a chance to run, you bastard. You better take it. Patrick made for the hospital doors following his children who had already run back to the building for safety. Then Patrick heard two more shots fired. Gallagher sped off in his car. Shortly after this attack at Sligo General Hospital, a car sped through a routine Garda checkpoint on the road heading north and the same car made a U-turn on coming upon another roadblock in Donegal Town further up the west coast. The car then sped towards a nearby pier. As the vehicle was followed by Garda cars, the driver pulled up a rifle to show the police that the driver was armed. In response, Garda detectives fired a number of warning shots. Then the car drove off the pier, bringing the chase to a dramatic end, hampered only by the fact that at the time the tide was out, so the car landed in the relatively shallow four foot of water. Detectives waded out to the car and found John Gallagher inside. He was unconscious and had handcuffed himself to the steering wheel. Gurdy were able to free the man and gave him mouth to mouth before he was brought to Sligo General. Later, Gallagher's 22 rifle was found near to the pier. Meanwhile, the extended Gillespie family was in shock. Both Anne and Annie had been shot dead in the back of their car. But the fatal attack on Anne and her family was not something that had occurred out of the blue. Gallagher's behavior had become increasingly aggressive and intimidating on September fifteenth nineteen eighty eight A man working in a local garage owned by Anne's uncle, Patrick McGuire had heard Anne shouting. She'd yelled, quote, "Help me! He's going to kill me." End quote. The man ran towards the screaming and saw that Anne had been trying to make her way home from school but had been intercepted by John Gallagher. There was also an incident which took place at a family wedding. John Gallagher had attacked a young man who had danced with Anne at the wedding with a knife. When the attack on the other man was over, Gallagher had then accosted Anne, smearing blood on her face and getting blood all over her. She was terrified and said that Gallagher's increasingly erratic behaviour had her in fear for her life. According to the Irish Times, Anne had gone to Gardie and told them that Gallagher had raped her, but she'd withdrawn that complaint when Gallagher was admitted to St. Connell's Psychiatric Hospital in Letterkenny. This inpatient treatment had begun after Gallagher had threatened to throw himself from a bridge into the River Foyle, but Gallagher had been discharged the day before he killed Anne and her mother. After the shootings, post-mortems were carried out on Anne and Annie's bodies on Monday the 19th of September by a pathologist from Galway, while Gardee waited to interview the man who had driven himself into the sea. He was then named in the press as John Gallagher, the boyfriend that Anne had been trying to break things off with. He'd been brought to intensive care after being rushed to hospital by Gardee. On Wednesday, the 22nd of September 1988, Gardy charged John Gallagher with the murder of Anne Gillespie. In response to the charge, Gallagher said, She was my girlfriend for three and a half years and I did not mean to bring about her death, end quote. He was remanded in custody to Mountjoy Prison. Gallagher was sent forward for trial on two charges of murder and a charge of attempting to shoot Patrick Maguire on Friday, the 13th of January 1989. Gallagher's trial began before a jury of 8 men and 4 women and Mr Justice Richard Johnson in the Central Criminal Court on Tuesday the 11th of July 1989 and John Gallagher pleaded not guilty to each charge There was a lengthy delay before the trial proper began but then Mr Fergus Flood senior counsel gave the opening statement for the prosecution Mr. Flood told the court that they would hear Anne and the defendant had been in a relationship for over three years, but it had soured just before the shooting occurred. That day, Gallagher had called Patrick McGuire to try and get him to intervene on his behalf with Anne. It was during this call that he discovered that a visit to Sligo General Hospital was planned for later that evening. It was the state's case that Gallagher had driven to the hospital in his white fiesta at 8pm and waited for the family to come out. When Anne and her mother emerged at a quarter past nine and got into their own car, John moved his car to near to theirs. He then got out and shot the two women. The jury would also hear from Patrick McGuire that Gallagher had threatened him before shooting Anne and Annie and before speeding off in his own car which he later drove into the Atlantic. The next morning, there were consultations between the prosecution and the defence in order to come with an agreed set of facts to put before the judge and jury in the case. After a number of hours, a document was read to the court, where the defendant acknowledged that he had shot Anne and Annie Gillespie and had then driven into the sea. But Gallagher's lawyer, Mister Paddy McInty, said that though these agreed facts would work to shorten the proceedings as a whole. It would also allow them to focus on disputed areas in the case, such as his client's intentions at the time of the shooting and Gallagher's mental health. After this hearing completed, Patrick Maguire was called to the stand. He was Anne's uncle through marriage. Patrick said he was aware that the defendant and Anne had been going out for a few years and that sometime before the shooting, Anne had broken things off with Gallagher. On the night of the eighteenth of September, he and his family were leaving the hospital. His daughter Katrina shouted that she saw John Gallagher and that he had a gun. Katrina ran back into the hospital with her brothers. Anne and Annie Gillespie were at this stage sitting in the back of their car. John shouted at Anne to get out of the car, and Anne was hysterical. Patrick heard her say, "Mammy, mammy, he has a gun and he's going to kill me." Then, Gallagher had fired a shot over the car and turned the gun to the witness. Maguire recalled that John had said, quote, You did me no favors this morning, end quote, and that he heard the rifle click, but that no shot was discharged. Then, Gallagher had shot the rear wheel of the car and turned back to Maguire, telling him he should run away, saying, quote, I'm giving you a chance to run for your life, you bastard. You better fucking take it. End quote. As Maguire tried to make his way back to safety, he heard another shot discharged and he heard Annie yell, oh, you've shot Anne. And then one more shot came. After this, Fergus Flood, appearing on behalf of the state, had read aloud the pathologist reports of the post-mortems on the two women, which determined both had died of single shots to the head. On Thursday, the 14th of July, the state completed its case, and Mr. McEntee addressed the jury. He said that the jury would hear evidence that Gallagher had not been in his right mind when the shooting had occurred. Christopher Gallagher, the defendant's brother, said that in the days before the shooting, John had seemed, quote, totally out of his mind, end quote. Then, the defendant himself took the stand. He told the court that, at 13, he had been involved in a car accident and had suffered serious injuries. He had also had trouble academically in school, though he had recently begun to learn to read and write while he was in the Central Mental Hospital. At some point in his teens, he'd begun to put on a lot of weight, reaching 17 stone, or 240 pounds. He'd been trying to lose the weight when he heard a segment on the radio about pills which caused you to lose weight. He'd gone to dairy and bought them from a chemist and began to lose weight very quickly, but the pills had side effects and he suffered from very bad headaches. He took to wearing dark sunglasses. Gallagher told the court that he and Anne had had a good relationship but that things went wrong when they attended a wedding and Gallagher had had a lot to drink. He'd ended up getting into a fight and was covered in blood. The following morning, he'd met Anne and her mother at mass in Ballybofi. He'd apologised, but Anne said only that he'd been a disgrace. Anne later told him that she wanted to end their relationship for a while. After this, Gallagher said he'd taken a whole box of Disprin, an aspirin pill, and drank some aftershave lotion, which had made him violently ill. Later that week he promised Anne he would not drink again and took the pledge, meaning he'd made a religious oath swearing off alcohol. Anne had sent him cards for Valentine's Day and for his birthday that year and had given him a necklace with the words John Love Anne on it. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, BetterHelp. Men's Raya listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. Listen, we all have those moments in life where we are going through it. And adding another thing to our to-do list at those times, like research and find a new therapist and find appointments, can seem like just adding to the overwhelming pile of stuff to deal with. It's understandable to put it on the back burner, but with BetterHelp, all of that is at your fingertips, with the hard work taken out of it for you. BetterHelp match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs and you can start online professional counseling in less than 48 hours it's available worldwide there's a huge range of expertise and it's so easy to use you can even send messages to your therapist between sessions and get timely and thoughtful responses BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today visit betterhelp.com/mens. betterhelp.com forward slash mens that's BetterHelp help forward slash M-E-N-S, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And right now, BetterHelp are offering Mens Rea listeners that 10% off for your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash mens. On Friday the 14th of July, the jury heard from Gallagher again. They were told that the morning of the shooting he had sent a cassette tape over to Anne, couriered there by a friend. On it he said that he had been at a disco the night before and seeing all the other young couples holding hands had made him think of her. He asked Anne to forgive him and said that he loved her and that he'd prayed to St Jude, the patron saint of hopeless cases, for her to get in touch with him. He pleaded for just one phone call. Then, Gallagher's senior counsel questioned him about what he recalled from that evening. Gallagher admitted he had driven to the hospital, bringing along with him his dad's rifle and ammunition, and that he had shot at a light and at a tyre of the car. Gallagher said he had then fired into the back window of the car and heard moaning and other noises. When he looked into the back seat, he saw that Anne was not moving. Gallagher then described taking the rifle and putting it to his throat. He pulled the trigger. Twice, but it didn't shoot. After this, he drove off. Gallagher said, quote, I never intended to harm anybody. I don't know what state of mind I was in. I still love Anne, end quote. The court adjourned then for the weekend, and on the 17th of July, Dr. Desmond McGrath, a clinical psychologist from the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum, gave evidence. Dr. McGrath said that Gallagher had a, quote, low intellectual ability and had very poor personal resources to handle problems, end quote. The doctor said that he felt that the car accident that the defendant had been in had probably aggravated a personality disorder further. Dr. McGrath said that all of these underlying issues had been exacerbated by what he called massive doses of diet pills, which Dr. McGrath told the court could cause delusions of persecution, irritability, overactivity and loss of judgement. All of this was going on in circumstances where Anne had broken off the relationship with Gallagher. In their meetings, the defendant had described firing shots and then turning the gun on himself but said that he didn't recall having handcuffed himself to his steering wheel or driving into the sea. Gallagher had told Dr. McGrath that he still loved Anne and he wished he had killed himself. The following day, Tuesday the 18th of July 1989, another consultant from the Central Mental Hospital, Dr. Art O'Connor, appeared on behalf of the prosecution. Dr. O'Connor said that Gallagher had been transferred to the Central Mental Hospital four days after he was brought to Mountjoy after he made an attempt on his life using the sheets from his bed. Dr. O'Connor said that although Gallagher did have a tendency to become withdrawn and depressed, and that he was an immature, frustrated and angry young man, he found no evidence of mental illness. The doctor went on to say that a more prominent effect from Gallagher's injuries at 13 was that his family had been much easier on him in terms of his attitude and behaviour, and Gallagher had become accustomed to getting what he wanted. Though the action of driving off the pier Dr O'Connor felt was a genuine attempt on his own life, Previous incidents, including the threat to throw himself from a bridge, had been determined by Dr. O'Connor to be a result more of immaturity and seeking attention. On the night of the shootings, Dr. O'Connor said that the defendant had been very upset and that the blackout Gallagher described having had after discharging his gun was possible. But Gallagher was not suffering from a disease of the mind or a psychiatric condition, which would mean that Gallagher did not know what he was doing when he shot Anne and her mother. After that, evidence in the case concluded. The charge against Gallagher for attempting to shoot Patrick Maguire was withdrawn at that point. On Wednesday morning, Ms. Olive Buttimer, appearing on behalf of the state, gave the closing statement for the prosecution she told the jury that there were three verdicts open to them. If they were convinced that Gallagher had been insane when he shot Anne and Annie Gillespie, they should find him guilty but insane. If Gallagher hadn't been insane and had intended to kill the two women, the jury should find him guilty of murder. Thirdly, if there was no intent, no mens rea on the defendant's part, their verdict should be that of manslaughter. Paddy McEntee then took to his feet to deliver his closing statement on behalf of John Gallagher. He said that guilty but insane was the proper verdict in this case. His client had obviously been out of his mind at the time, as he had driven through two Garda checkpoints and then into the sea. Those were not the actions of a sane man. McEntee went on to say that with that verdict, or a verdict of manslaughter, the jury could be assured. That Gallagher would pose no risk to society at large. Throughout the closing speeches, Gallagher sat quietly with his head in his hands. He could be seen to be holding a crucifix and a set of rosary beads. Then Mr. Justice Johnson gave his summing up. The judge reminded the jury that the two doctors that the court had heard from had agreed that Gallagher had taken a significant amount of slimming tablets. He'd lost six stone in under three months, and that his mind would have been affected by this use in some way. The jury went out to deliberate and returned three hours later. When the twelve people walked back into the courtroom, Gallagher's mother, Margaret, fainted and had to be assisted by her husband, John. The seven men and five women had reached a verdict of ten to two, and found John Gallagher guilty of the murders. They said he was insane. Gallagher was remanded in custody to the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum until further order of the court. The verdict of guilty but insane meant that there would be no appeals in the matter. In effect, Gallagher had been acquitted. There wasn't anything to appeal. Two weeks later, an action was brought before the High Court on behalf of another man who had recently been found guilty but insane, Francie Madden. He had been convicted in November of 1985 of murdering his neighbour while mentally ill. Lawyers for Mr Madden were going to argue that the legislation which provided that the jury reached such a verdict in these kinds of cases was unconstitutional saying that the conviction would stay with Mr. Madden for the rest of his life, despite having been successfully treated for his mental disorder and having been released from psychiatric care. Despite the fact that Gallagher had no entitlement to appeal, his guilty-but-insane verdict did not mark the end to his legal proceedings. He and his lawyers had been watching other cases with guilty-but-insane verdicts progress through the courts, and they turned their efforts towards securing John Gallagher's release. In December of 1989, an application for Gallagher's release was brought, saying that the 22-year-old was no longer insane. Paddy McEntee said that Gallagher had been judged mentally ill at the time of the crime, but he would recovered from this by the time of the trial and was therefore fit for release. This application was adjourned. The following month, relatives of Anne and Annie Gillespie wrote to the Minister for Justice, the Director of Public Prosecutions, and Guardian Sligo to convey their dismay that the application had been brought and to protest the move. The letter said that the family were afraid at the prospect of someone who had committed two murders being released back into society less than a year after that conviction, and that they feared for their own safety too. On Monday the 29th of January 1990, a hearing took place before Mr Justice Johnson in the Central Criminal Court. At that hearing, Kevin Haw, Senior Counsel, appeared on behalf of the Gillespie family and made an application for those relatives to be represented at any hearing regarding Gallagher's release. Paddy McEntee, appearing on behalf of Gallagher, said that the notion of admitting a third party to any such hearings was astounding and was a move that he argued would require new legislation. He pointed out that no precedent had been put forward by Mr. Haw, which was because, of course, there simply wasn't any. Since the foundation of the state, there was nothing which had allowed such a thing. Judge Johnson dismissed Mr. Haw's application but said that this was not a final decision, as Mr. Haw could reapply when all the evidence he had relating to the application had been submitted to the DPP, Gallagher's legal team, and the lawyers representing the prosecution. Mr. Justice Johnson also said that the DPP should indicate what witnesses were to be called, along with any proposed evidence, and provide all that material to Mr. McEntee, Mr. Haw, and to Fergus Flood, who was acting for the prosecution. The application for Gallagher's release was again adjourned until February 26th. On that date, the court was told that a case had gone to the Supreme Court to clarify whether the courts or the government should make the decision on when a person found guilty but insane would be released from state's custody. There had been a ruling on the 16th of that month at the High Court by Justice Rory O'Hanlon that it was actually for the government to make this decision. After this decision, Gallagher's solicitors had immediately written to the government asking for his release. Mr McEntee told the court that the reply received from the government had been that they would be taking no action while there were still matters before the courts. Mr Justice Johnson adjourned the application to await the outcome from the Supreme Court, but told Mr McEntee that if there were any undue delays in that proceeding, a fresh application for release could be made. In June of 1990, Dr. Art O'Connor, who had given evidence at Gallagher's trial, highlighted the difficulties with the procedures involved with a guilty but insane verdict. The laws around the insanity defence were outdated, having been laid down in 1843. Until recent times, the doctor said, a guilty but insane verdict meant that someone would likely be confined in a psychiatric hospital for many years, often much longer than they would have if they had been sent to prison. But as treatments for mental illness and personality disorders improved, this was no longer the case, and more and more often, people were being determined insane at the time of their crime, but by the time of their trial, they were in better health. It was not appropriate, Dr. O'Connor said, for that person to then be sent back to the central mental hospital when treatment was no longer required. Dr. O'Connor also expressed concerns that the defense of insanity might be exploited by those who saw it as a way to circumvent a lengthy sentence. He said judges needed discretion to send someone to prison or to the central mental hospital for a fixed period of time. Dr O'Connor's assertion that the legal system had not moved on at all was correct. The law had been set out in the 1800s in the Trial of Lunatics Act, passed in the British Parliament. A person found guilty but insane would be ordered to an appropriate facility by the judge and would remain there, quote, till Her Majesty's pleasure shall be known, end quote. In Ireland, the decision to release someone rested with the Lord Lieutenant, who was the Queen's representative here. After Irish independence, a law was passed folding in all previous legislation into the new legal system of the Irish Free State. The issue of where the powers of the Lord Lieutenant rested in the newly independent state wasn't dealt with until 1971, in a case relating to a murder, where a 16-year-old had been found guilty in 1956. At the time, this would have resulted in a mandatory death sentence. However, the Children's Act, passed before independence, provided that a minor would be held at His Majesty's pleasure, instead of being sent to the gallows. And so, in this case, 16 years after his conviction, this person appealed for release by bringing a habeas corpus application to the High Court. There, the president of that court, Mr Justice O'Keefe, held that the ability to select a punishment was something that fell to the trial judge to decide. Therefore, the power of the Lord Lieutenant was found to sit with the courts in this case, rather than with the executive arm of the government. After all, the administration of justice is set out in the Constitution as being within the purview of the judiciary only. But the specific issue of who decided when a person found guilty but insane might be released had not come before the court until 1990. It had been considered by a committee led by Mr. Justice Henchy in 1978, which had made a number of recommendations for the reform of the law around guilty but insane verdicts, but subsequent governments had failed to introduce any reform on the law. On July 27th, 1990, there was another hearing in the court on Gallagher's case after the Supreme Court had delivered its judgment in the other case. There, it had been decided that judges did have the authority to hear applications for the release of those judged guilty but insane. Mr McEntee made an application to Mr Justice Johnson on this basis, saying that John Gallagher was no longer suffering from a disease of the mind and should therefore be released. At the hearing, senior counsel representing the Director of Public Prosecutions and the Attorney General also appeared. Both argued that the release of people held at the Central Mental Hospital after a guilty but insane conviction was a matter for the Executive. Mr Justice Johnson said that legislation on the matter should be passed immediately to clarify who was to make this kind of decision and adjourned the case once more. The following Monday, Paddy McEntee made the application again, asking also that the judge consider that Gallagher might be released on bail until such a time as jurisdiction on the matter of release had been decided. But Mr Justice Johnson said that bail could not be considered in these circumstances. Rather, he wanted the issue resolved as soon as possible. In October of 1990, counsel for the DPP Morris Gaffney made submissions to Judge Johnson asking for an order to be made committing John Gallagher to the custody of the Minister for Justice. Mr Owen Fitzsimon, senior counsel appearing on behalf of the Attorney General, told the court that his instructions were that the judge did in fact have jurisdiction to make the decisions. The Gillespie family had representation there too by Kevin Haw. Paddy McEntee said it was absurd to suggest that the courts did not have the authority to make an order for the release of his client. Mr. Justice Johnson reserved judgment on the matter, and Gallagher remained in custody in Dundrum. The judge had to consider whether the decision making process in terms of release was a matter for the government, the executive, like had been decided in the case of Patrick Ellis earlier that year. Or as a matter for the judiciary to be dealt with in the courts. He had to ask was the decision at its very core an issue of dealing with punishment for a crime? If so, then it was up to a judge to hand out justice. But if a person who was guilty but insane was in receipt of treatment rather than punishment, then the decision might not fall under the umbrella of justice, and it would be a function of government to make such a decision. This was what had been decided the April before in the case of Patrick Neelan. Judge Johnson began at first principles and started with the idea that when someone is found guilty but insane, they are essentially found innocent of the crime due to insanity, and the court does not really impose a sentence. The order of the court is providing for the person's transfer to the central mental hospital rather than deciding a sentence. Judge Johnson decided that it was not up to the trial judge to monitor or control the progress of a person once sent to the Central Mental Hospital and that this was primarily a medical health matter. The judicial process had no proper place in matters of health. Furthermore, the government would have the advice of qualified medical experts open to them in any decision-making process. And on that note, Mr. Justice Johnson said that he had been contacted by the team at the Central Mental Hospital the month before, asking if the court needed to sanction a day trip that Gallagher was to take. This, he said, was not a function of the court. Gallagher would have to petition the government then for release if and when it was determined he had recovered from his mental illness and recourse to the court would only come into play if he as the applicant thought that there was malafides on the part of the government in their treatment of his application. Johnson said, quote, "I am ordering that Gallagher be detained in the central mental hospital until the pleasure of the government is known." End quote. On Monday the 17th of December, Justice Johnson granted a stay on the order that he had made the Friday before, that Gallagher be detained in the Central Mental Hospital at the pleasure of the government. The application had been made by the Attorney General. He said he felt that the status quo should be maintained until an appeal made its way to the Supreme Court. But of course, there was still a previous order in place holding Gallagher in Dundrum, which was still in effect. Paddy McEntee then applied to the Supreme Court to have the stay lifted and have the government consider his client's application for release. This, of course, was not done. McEntee later said that all of this in effect meant that Gallagher was being held in the Central Mental Hospital without any recourse to decide his release. The Chief Justice, Mr Justice Finlay, told Paddy McEntee that Justice Johnson had exercised a correct discretion in the interest of justice and that the Supreme Court would expedite Gallagher's appeal. It would be heard the following month, on the 22nd of January, 1991. When that hearing came around, Gallagher's legal team argued that the decision to release someone from custody in the Central Mental Hospital lay with the courts and that part of the 1883 Trial of Lunatics Act was unconstitutional. Paddy McEntee said that there was no other situation would order a person to be deprived of their liberty for an indefinite period of time and then divest themselves of any responsibility relating to that custodial period afterwards. A lawyer for the Attorney General was also appearing, arguing that the 1883 Act was in line with the Constitution, but also that it was up to the courts to decide on the release of a person found guilty but insane. The DPP, on the other hand, took the position that this decision lay with the government. Morris Gaffney, senior counsel, said that even after a trial where someone was found guilty but insane, and where a psychiatrist said that the defendant was now sane, it may be the case that they were still not in a position to be released or reintegrate into society. Society itself, Mr. Gaffney said, may even need time to adjust to the notion of that person's release. Two weeks later, the judgment was delivered by Mr. Justice McCarthy. The court had decided unanimously that the special verdict of guilty but insane was not actually an administration of justice. Being ordered into the care of the Central Mental Hospital was not a sentencing, as in a more straightforward case. Because this was not an administration of justice, it was in the purview of the government, as part of its role in caring for society and the protection of the common good. The court should have no role in monitoring or inquiring into the mental state of a person in the Central Mental Hospital found guilty but insane. The government would decide whether it was satisfied, whether it was safe to release the person, taking into account both public and private reasons when informed by medical experts that the person no longer suffered from a mental illness. The court would no longer hear applications in relation to the detention of those in the Central Mental Hospital as had been done in the case of Francis Nealon, who had also taken his appeal in 1990. Applications for a short-term release for him had been made by doctors at the Central Mental Hospital informally in judges' chambers a number of times throughout the 80s. However, when the medical team felt it would be time to transfer Nealon to a hospital in Galway closer to his home, this application was held in open court with the DPP represented. A Garda witness was called by the DPP to give evidence regarding the worries that people locally had expressed about Neyland's possible release and so the transfer was made only on a trial basis. Due to his experience with dealing with these various applications, the judge, Mr Justice Keane, came to the conclusion that the more informal applications in chambers were not appropriate in these cases and that the DPP should be put on notice of any change to the circumstances of a person in detention to represent the public interest. But with the Supreme Court decision, public hearings would no longer happen. Now, a politician with advice from various quarters would make such a decision behind closed doors. There would be no further refinement of the law in the courts with this ruling, and any change in the procedure would have to be made now through the government passing legislation. On Wednesday the 15th of May 1991, Gallagher and his legal team were granted leave to seek judicial review at the High Court for an order directing the government to hold an inquiry into his continued detention, in circumstances where Gallagher had been found of sound mind by doctors at the Central Mental Hospital. Paddy McEntee told Mr Justice Lavin that it was his belief that the government would not hold such an inquiry until it was forced to, and then would not grant release until it was in a similar position, though Mr McEntee said he was quote, not without sympathy for the government's disinclination, end quote. At the next hearing in the case, the court was informed by McEntee that the government had agreed to hold an inquiry into Gallagher's detention on a timescale that was acceptable to the applicant. The Irish Times reported that the government would be forming a committee made up of a barrister, a psychiatrist and a general medical practitioner to advise the government on the case. In November, that committee delivered its report to the Minister for Justice. It had decided that, quote, having regard to the criteria in the terms of reference, Mr Gallagher's continued detention in both the public and private interests is warranted and that Mr Gallagher should not be released, end quote. When Ray Burke, the minister, made public this decision, he also said it was his intention to bring forward new legislation to finally begin reforms on the guilty but insane laws in Ireland. Two weeks later, a similar committee presented their findings in relation to Francis Neelan. He was to be released from custody. In July 1993, Gallagher applied to the High Court for judicial review of the decision not to release him. At this hearing, his solicitor submitted a statement which outlined a number of concerns about the committee inquiry itself, saying the procedure wasn't fair. Gallagher had not been permitted to have his legal counsel present for the full hearing on the matter. They were not allowed to cross-examine witnesses interviewed or call evidence on Gallagher's behalf. Gallagher's lawyers were only allowed to make submissions on his behalf. Gallagher's team had not been notified of what evidence would be called either. Finally, Gallagher said that the proceedings adopted by the committee were not prescribed by law. The application seeking review was granted, but once again, Gallagher was not released. In 1996, after a further review was delivered to the government regarding John Gallagher's detention, Dr Charles Smith, the director of the Central Mental Hospital, said he could no longer justify detaining Gallagher further, as he was no longer in imminent danger. Gallagher brought an application to the High Court, saying that the Minister for Justice could no longer support his detention on the basis of mental disorder due to this statement a date for a hearing was to be fixed with priority. After this, the Gillespie family spoke out, saying that they feared for their safety should Gallagher be released. Patrick Maguire, Annie's brother, who was at the hospital at the time of the shooting, noted the last time he'd seen John Gallagher, the man had pointed a rifle at him and tried to shoot him dead. He continued, quote, John Gallagher is evil. He committed murder most foul. I never want to see him released. He told us he would spill blood and that it would not be his own. He openly told us that if we put him away, his hatred would only build up. I have no doubt he could kill again. End quote. Patrick Maguire brought these concerns to court on June 10th when his lawyers made an application to have Anne and Annie's family represented at the upcoming hearing regarding Gallagher's continued detention. An affidavit prepared by Mr Maguire's solicitor outlined his concerns regarding Gallagher's release, primarily that there was a threat of harm. The argument to have him joined as a third party to Gallagher's hearing was that Gallagher's release would infringe on Patrick Maguire and the wider Gillespie family's constitutional rights under Article 40.1 where the state guarantees to respect, defend and vindicate the personal rights of the citizen. The affidavit underlined that it was Maguire's intention to vindicate and balance his and his family's rights, saying it was not Maguire's intention to interfere with Gallagher's own rights under the constitution. A three-judge divisional court met on the 20th of June to hear arguments related to the representation of the Gillespie family at the inquiry into Gallagher's release and their ability to give evidence there. Adrian Hardeman, as senior counsel, represented the relatives. The affidavit prepared by Patrick Maguire and his solicitors was read to the court. It outlined a number of incidents which Maguire believed indicated that he would be at risk if Gallagher was released. Patrick Maguire said he was first threatened by Gallagher in and around September of 1988, when one of his employees had intervened in an incident where Gallagher was assaulting Anne. After this, Gallagher had driven to Maguire's business, a garage, and marked a cross on the back window of Maguire's car. Maguire and his employee, Mr Duffy, took this to mean that Gallagher intended to kill Patrick Maguire. The affidavit described Gallagher's assault on the man at the wedding, including that Gallagher had smeared blood on Anne's face afterwards. Gallagher was also alleged to have threatened to run her over with his car. He had in fact attempted to run over Mr Maguire's daughter and niece and then attacked these two girls. Again on the night of the wedding Gallagher was alleged to have broken a mirror at Annie Gillespie's house and threatened to set her home on fire. A teacher of Anne's said that Anne had told her in confidence that Gallagher was going to kill her and the woman made a statement to that effect. The teacher left the parish because she feared what might happen if Gallagher was to be released. A cousin of Anne's said that she had been under psychiatric care and treatment due to fear caused to her by Gallagher's repeated attempts to be released. Mr Maguire himself had put his own home on the market and applied for green cards to move to the United States, such were his fears. It was his intention that Gallagher's attitude towards him and the rest of Anne's family had not changed. Hardiman said that the family had not been notified of any changes proposed in Gallagher's detention and they were anxious to be involved in any proceeding which may result in release. The family believed it had additional evidence that was not in the possession of anyone else and that many aspects of the case had not been brought before the court in Gallagher's initial trial. John Rogers, senior counsel, appeared on behalf of the Attorney General and told the court that it was not the government's intention to release Gallagher per se, but there was a plan to allow brief releases of a few hours over a period of time. He asserted that the affidavit that had been presented to the court on the Gillespie's behalf was in fact hearsay, and in many instances it was hearsay upon hearsay. Nor could it be allowed that the inquiry be used in such a way to go behind the verdict of the Central Criminal Court and attempt to establish intent on Gallagher's part, which seemed to be what the weight of the affidavit was directed to. Mr. Maguire was stating that in 1988, Gallagher had the intent to kill him. There was no evidence of this, nor was there any evidence of any present intent, Hardiman said. On the second day of the hearing in the application, Gallagher's counsel, Mr. Donal O'Donnell, said that he acknowledged the pain and grief caused to the Gillespie family, but reluctantly had to oppose the application that they had made. His client had no wish to add to their pain, he said, or act as a protagonist or to open up issues dealt with in the criminal trial. Gallagher, the court was told, had a deep remorse for what he had done to Anne and Annie, and had no intention of causing them any further trouble he wished to leave Ireland should he be released. The court adjourned and reserved judgment on the application. This was delivered a number of weeks later on July 10th and the court held that the Gillespie's could not have legal representation at the hearing. The upcoming hearing was between Gallagher who was seeking release and the Attorney General on behalf of the government who were opposing it. There was no conflict of interest between the two parties and no need for any additional input into the proceedings. Further, there was no evidence produced that the executive was carrying out its functions in relation to Mr. Gallagher in an improper way. It would have been a dramatic departure from previous jurisprudence to allow a victim, or in this instance, an alleged potential victim, to be given a hearing in the criminal process. Given the circumstances, despite Maguire's application being refused, his costs were awarded against the state. After, a solicitor, speaking on behalf of the Gillespie family, said that they were of course disappointed with the outcome but felt vindicated in the need to bring such an application by the awarding of costs. To them, this indicated that it had obviously been a matter of public importance which needed to be considered by the courts. The following week, on Wednesday, the 17th of July, the divisional court began hearing the inquiry into John Gallagher's detention at the Central Mental Hospital. An affidavit from Dr. Charles Smith described how Gallagher suffered from a personality disorder, which gave him a tendency to anger and violence. These tendencies lessened as a person aged and matured. It was Dr. Smith's opinion that Gallagher had not been mentally ill when admitted to the Central Mental Hospital in 1988, nor was he mentally ill at the time that the affidavit was sworn. Dr. O'Connor explained that he had taken over Gallagher's care from Dr. Art O'Connor and he was aware that Dr. O'Connor had been of the opinion that Gallagher had not been insane as defined by law on the day that the murders were committed, and that he agreed with this assessment. Dr. Smith recommended that Gallagher would benefit from a phased release from the facility and that a full discharge should only take place after completing a phased release programme. This was something that the government could order and was a possibility that had only come about in recent times as Gallagher had aged and matured, lessening the effects of his personality disorder on his behaviour. Dr. Smith also said that Gallagher posed no imminent danger to the general public should he, for instance, abscond from a phased release programme. However, he was of the opinion that it would be most appropriate to do a phased release rather than an immediate release and that the programme should be laid out for Gallagher. Indefinite detention was also not in his best medical interests a senior manager in the Department of Justice submitted an affidavit which stated that the Minister of Justice was entitled to take into account a wider totality of evidence in making a decision regarding Gallagher's release, not just the medical evidence put before her. Donal O'Donnell was appearing again on behalf of John Gallagher and said that the application to the court was being made in relation to Gallagher's rights under Article 40.4 of the Constitution. There had thus far been three advisory committees set up in relation to Gallagher's release and they had heard the most recent evidence from Dr Charles Smith. The Minister for Justice had not, however, made a decision on this issue of whether Gallagher was suffering from a mental defect or disease which warranted his detention. The most recent committee was held in July of 1995 and in May of 1996 Gallagher was informed that he would be allowed one afternoon out a month for a period of six months, where he would be accompanied by a staff member. He was given no decision on the central matter of the advisory committee, nor was he given any indication of what would happen after the six months was up. Mr. O'Donnell went on to explain that although these proceedings had been characterized as Gallagher attempting to secure his immediate release from care at the Central Mental Hospital, this was not Gallagher's ultimate goal. It was simply the form his application had to take while seeking to vindicate his constitutional rights. Gallagher, in fact, wanted the phased release program that had been recommended put in place by order of the executive, which it had to this point failed to do. The government had been ignoring medical advice and had not carried out their duty to make such decisions in a fair way, he was saying. The next day, Dr. Smith was called as a witness to appear before the divisional court. He explained that there had been no determination regarding Gallagher's specific personality disorder, but it had involved immaturity, impulsiveness and egocentricity. While in the Central Mental Hospital, Gallagher's behaviour had improved over the years, beginning with troubled behaviour in the early years. Gallagher now displayed a more sensible nature, was mature and considerate, and was able to discuss his problems. Dr Smith said that there was only really one way to determine how much of an effect the disorder would have on Gallagher in the outside world, and that was to allow a supervised phase release of the man. Senior counsel Michael Carson, appearing on behalf of the hospital, agreed that this was the case. On the third day of the hearing, Dr Smith was questioned by Gallagher's senior counsel and counsel for the hospital. Michael Carson asked Dr Smith to explain the utility of a phased release programme. The director of the Central Mental Hospital said that they were, in effect, tests carried out to see how a person would adjust to life outside the hospital though there was nothing particularly scientific about them. Dr. Smith continued that in Gallagher's case the programme would be conservative and he would slowly move through the stages, as in when Gallagher showed he was able to adjust well. The medical team would report at each stage the results to the Minister for Justice. Dr. Smith commented on the proposal that Gallagher had been informed of, the six months of afternoon releases, and said that it was slow by usual standards in a phased release programme. One of the judges, Mr. Justice Kelly, asked if Dr. Smith's advice had been sought in relation to the proposal, and Dr. Smith said that it had not, and agreed that it had been presented as a fait accompli. Donald O'Donnell asked Dr. Smith about Gallagher's behaviour and Dr Smith said that it was quote-unquote normal within the context of living in the institution. Mr John Rogers, on behalf of the state, also cross-examined Dr Smith and asked if Dr Smith had ever accepted that Gallagher was mentally ill. Dr Smith said no. Gallagher, in his opinion, had never been mentally ill, but did have a mental disorder. Mr. Rogers asked him then if Dr. Smith accepted the mental disorder had played a part in the murders that had occurred in 1988. The psychiatrist replied that he did accept that and that this mental disorder was part of the so-called dangerousness which had occurred. Smith accepted that this also gave rise to a risk of further dangerousness in the future. Rogers said it was the dangerousness and public safety which had been key issues in the decision-making process for the Department of Justice. It was the state's position that the limited afternoon releases would function as tests of Gallagher's behaviour, and that the results of these would help provide information in further assessments and reviews of Gallagher's case. Mr Rogers said that the application made by Gallagher was seeking a decision from the courts, despite the matter resting with the executive. Gallagher simply wanted a declaration that he should be released, which was outside the process of reviews that had been set out. The Divisional Court of Justices Gagan, Lefoy and Kelly sat again on Tuesday the 24th of July 1996 and heard summaries of the arguments of both sides in the case. John Rogers said that the Minister for Justice had made a decision in the case that limited outings should be allowed for Gallagher to see how prepared he might be to begin reintegration into the community. The Minister was concerned also with the level of dangerousness posed by Gallagher, if any. Donal O'Donnell for Gallagher said that his client was simply seeking to have a phased release programme put in place because Gallagher was not insane. It was their argument that the Minister for Justice had not made a decision on the central issue of whether or not Gallagher was mentally ill. He had been determined by medical staff to not be insane, and his future dangerousness could only be determined by reference to his current mental state. He was still a citizen of the state and had rights. What the Minister had set out was, in essence, a refusal to release him, and was a deliberate vagueness, making his detention unlawful. Mr. Justice Gagan, on behalf of the Divisional Court, said that they were reserving their judgment. The decision of the Divisional Court was delivered six weeks later, on September 6, 1996. The judges unanimously rejected Gallagher's assertion that his rights had been breached by the decision of the Minister for Justice. They said, though it was possible that there had been outside influence exerted on the Minister for Justice in making her decision, there had been no improper influence in her actually coming to her decision, and they said that though the department might be reticent to call their decision a phased release programme, that is in effect what it was. The court did criticise the way the case had been dealt with by the department, saying that there had been unjustifiable delays in making decisions in relation to Gallagher's release. This was due to the fact that the decision of the minister had only been finalised after Gallagher had brought his case to court, making it reasonable to assume that the proceedings they were now dealing with had prompted the decision itself. On his way back to the Central Mental Hospital from court, Gallagher told reporters that he was not very pleased with the decision and that he would be going through the judgement with his legal team. In the meantime, he had six three-hour releases in the Dublin area to look forward to, where he would be accompanied by staff from Dundrum and an extra family outing at Christmas. His detention would be reviewed again by the Minister for Justice the following year. The review process did indeed continue and gradual changes were made to his release conditions. In 1998, Gallagher took up a job at a private business Outside the hospital, and he travelled to and from his workplace by himself. In October of 1999, he began living at a hostel on the hospital grounds and made his way to work from there. And then, on Saturday, the 16th of July 2000, Gallagher had been on a pre approved outing from the hospital for a social engagement. He was due to return to his lodging in the hostel at 7 pm, but he failed to turn up. Hospital staff, Contacted Gardie shortly before 10pm. A Garda search was launched, and Dr. Charles Smith assured the public that Gallagher was not considered to be a danger. By the following Tuesday, reports emerged that Gardie believed that Gallagher may have made his way to Britain after absconding, and they'd given his information to police in the UK. Gardie began looking through passenger manifestos from that weekend, and exit points from the state were manned by police personnel. Anne Gillespie's family expressed concern at the news. They were told that Gallagher had escaped at midnight the day it occurred, and Gardy tried to reassure them by saying that Garda car patrols on their road would be increased that night, but this did little for their peace of mind. Meanwhile, hospital staff were also reported as being surprised by Gallagher's actions. He had been progressing in his release program and was thought to be only two years or so from an indefinite release from the Central Mental Hospital. They were also anxious to stress that patients at the Central Mental Hospital who enjoyed that kind of freedom had built up a significant degree of trust with the staff. Gallagher had complied with all the conditions of his phased release program, but they noted he was becoming frustrated with the length of time he had been detained. His escape appeared to have been planned though. Nearly all of his belongings were taken from his room. The Irish Times reported that this included a framed photograph of his victims. He had taken off on his gold-coloured Yamaha motorbike which he'd been allowed to buy himself within the last number of months. The public were of course outraged by these events and opposition parties in the Dáil called on the Minister for Justice to make a statement on Gallagher's release to reassure the public. Just a few days later, on the 21st of July, Gallagher was picked up by police in Oxford in the UK. He was detained under the Mental Health Act there and underwent psychological assessment. The authorities in Ireland were notified. There was a question whether Britain would be able to extradite him, given that he technically had no conviction of a crime on his record, with his guilty but insane verdict. Details of his capture emerged later. The News of the World had set up a meeting with Gallagher saying they wanted to interview him and said that they would give him £12,000 for his story. An Irish journalist had tipped off the police, leading to Gallagher's arrest. After his assessment in England, Gallagher was found to be sane, and he was released after seven hours in police custody. It was thought that Gallagher had then gone to London to stay with a friend whom he'd met at the Central Mental Hospital. The DPP did not prepare extradition documents at the time, so Gallagher continued to stay in the UK. In January of 2001, Gardy and Donegal responded to a number of sightings of Gallagher in the area saying that there was no indication that Gallagher had returned to Ireland from the UK. In December of 2002, the government finally brought a new bill before the Dáil to reform the law in relation to guilty but insane verdicts. The verdict was to be replaced by one termed as not guilty by reason of insanity, and a new provision would allow finding that a person was guilty but with diminished responsibility, A new Mental Health Review Board would take on the responsibility of reviewing the detention of people held under the new laws and make decisions regarding their release. This was in line with rulings from the European Convention on Human Rights, which stated that such decisions should be made by independent bodies rather than the executive, where politics may come into play. That bill was finally signed into law by the President in 2006. In 2003, Gallagher moved to Straban in Northern Ireland where he lived with his partner and children. It was only 20 miles from where the Gillespies had lived in Ballybofi, County Donegal. It would take him just minutes to get to his family home, which was across the border and across the river in Lifford. The Gardaí and the DPP maintained their position that an extradition warrant for Gallagher's arrest would fail. Then, on May 22nd, 2012, John Gallagher handed himself in to the Central Mental Hospital. That weekend, the Department of Justice confirmed that Gallagher was being detained. Gallagher's family had not known about his detention until they read it in the newspapers and contacted the Department of Justice for confirmation. This was because John Gallagher was estranged from most of his family, being in contact with only one of his eight siblings And his mother. They learned he had handed himself in by appointment. Later that week, the Minister for Justice at the time, Alan Shatter, told the press that there, quote, may be an inevitability about Gallagher's release, end quote, reminding them that his department no longer had a role in deciding those matters, and saying Gallagher would have to go through the newly established process of applying to the Mental Health Review Board. And that's exactly what Gallagher did his application was almost immediate upon his detention at the Central Mental Hospital. Though estranged members of the Gallagher's family asked the Minister for Justice to detain their brother indefinitely, saying that they had fears for their own safety and needed time to make plans for what they would do if he regained his freedom. However, Gallagher's application went to the review board regardless and was dealt with quickly. On Friday, the 29th of June 2012, just after 4 p.m., he was allowed to leave the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum. He was banned from making any contact with members of the Gillespie family and some members of his own wider family, but was allowed to visit his mother and his father's grave in Lifford in County Donegal. The Department of Justice confirmed that Gallagher had been granted conditional discharge, and reiterated that the decision had been made by the independent board, but Gallagher's family weren't happy, saying that they had not been consulted in relation to the release, nor were any of their concerns taken into account. They said if Gallagher were to harm anyone else, the authorities would have blood on their hands. John Gallagher, or at least his legal representation, was back in court in October of that year. The court heard that a summons had been issued in July for Gallagher in relation to a charge of absconding from custody. This was a renewed version of a summons that had originally been issued in 2000 in the immediate aftermath of his escape from the Central Mental Hospital. Garda Sergeant Ivan Howland described for the court how he and a colleague had visited the Gallagher family business on Post Office Lane, where Gallagher had lived at the time he murdered Anne and Annie Gillespie. The Gardee believed that John still had links to the family transport business there. The Garda spoke to Gallagher's brother, Christopher, for around 30 minutes. Christopher spoke to John Gallagher on the phone then, and Sergeant Howland handed over an envelope for John containing the summons, which Christopher Gallagher assured the police would be passed on to John. Christopher Gallagher then took the stand and told the court that he had not been aware of what the envelope the guards had given him had contained. His brother regularly came across the border from County Tyrone, but he had no connection with the business operating on Post Office Lane. John Gallagher's solicitor, Dara Robinson, told the district court judge, Ms Murphy, that Gallagher was not present in the courtroom during the hearing, but was nearby if he should be required. Mr Robinson argued that the summons in question had not been correctly served on Gallagher. His client had an address in Strabane. He was not connected through business with the address the guardie had gone to and was not personally there when the envelope was handed over. The case was adjourned for a week and when the parties appeared once more before Ms Catherine Murphy, she ruled that the serving of the summons had been defective. And that was the last we heard of John Gallagher. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks goes out to Lida Kaiser, Mitch, Sophie French, Michelle Curry, Stephen Timlin, Neve Donovan, Susie McLean and Ruth Sheridan. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and, along with my undying love for helping out, you get those ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsor for this week, BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. And a big thank you to everyone who has reached out over the last episode. You are all so very kind. I wasn't able to respond to everyone, but please know that I really appreciate your support and I'll always endeavor to be upfront and transparent. Talking about mental health shouldn't be considered more brave than telling you I've broken my leg, but to get there, we have to share. And in that regard, everything was going swimmingly this week until I managed to break a tooth and have to have it pulled and that was followed swiftly by an earache. But I am plowing ahead, albeit a bit slower than I'd like and I can't wait to see some of you lovely people this weekend at CrimeCon UK. Remember, there are daily passes now available if you can't make the full weekend. There are a few tickets left on sale. You can use the code MENSREA to get your lovely little discount there. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. To be do, to be do, to be do had been determined by Dr. O'Connor. To be do, to be do, be do.